Hello, this is Kelly McGee, and today's date is September the 6th, 2020, and I have Surviving the 21st Century by Noam Chomsky. Welcome to you all. Uh, welcome to those here in the Great Hall, to those in the Common Centre, to those in Queens, where we are live streaming this evening. Um, welcome to you all, and particularly, of course, welcome to Noam, as we know him, Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky needs no introduction, so I'll be very, very brief. He's, of course, probably the one academic who is known throughout the world for his scholarship and public engagement. Currently Emeritus Professor in the Department of Linguistics and Philosophy at MIT, Noam was born in Philadelphia in 1928 and has worked for nearly all his career at one institution where he started in 1955, there's loyalty, MIT. Sometimes described as the father of linguistics, he is also a major figure in the philosophy of mind, language, politics, and ethics. He was named the world's top public intellectual by one poll, but we hardly needed reminding. Noam has written over a hundred books and has made massive contributions, of course, to the fields in which he's engaged. For years, he's been one of the most prominently cited academics. He has lectured in many of the most prominent lecture series of the world, and now he can add the Durham Castle Lecture Series to his list. His list of awards and honors is extraordinary, and one hardly knows where to start. I counted honorary degrees from at least 38 of the most distinguished universities in the world. In Germany, this would be a nightmare because of the tradition and convention of introducing important speakers by all of their degrees. So it would be welcome here, Professor Dr. 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 Dr till you get to 38. Among his most impressive honors, at least impressive to me, that I could find was a newly described species of bee that has been named after him. His talk, Surviving the 21st Century, uh, will um, uh, uh, be for about 35, 40 minutes or so, and then we will take questions from here and also from the other lecture theatres, which will somehow arrive on my iPad. Again, to remind you, hashtag Chomsky, if you wish to, to tweet. It's an incredible pleasure to have you here, and uh, please join with me in giving Noam Chomsky a better welcome than he's ever had before. title, Will We Survive the 21st Century? Uh, there is an irresistible image. It's the image of the proverbial uh, lemmings uh, marching towards the cliff, uh, cheering their intrepid leaders. Uh, as we should all be aware, for the first time in history, humans are now poised to uh, destroy the prospects for decent existence and uh, much of life. The rate of species destruction 
right now is about at the level of 65 million years ago uh, when a huge asteroid hit the hit the earth uh, entered ended the age of the dinosaurs uh, opened the way for the proliferation of mammals uh, the difference is that today we're the asteroid and the way may well be open to uh, beetles and bacteria when we've uh, concluded our work the geologists break the history of the planet into eras of relative stability uh, pleistocene lasted several million years followed by the holocene about 10,000 years ago that coincided with the uh, introduction of agriculture and uh, now geologists are adding a new uh, era a new epoch the uh, anthropocene beginning with the industrial revolution roughly 200 years ago uh, the uh, and it has uh, radically changed the natural world uh, in the light of the pace of change one hates to think about when the next epoch will begin and what it'll be. Uh, one effect of the Anthropocene is the extraordinary rate of species extinction. Another is the threat to ourselves. Uh, no literate person can fail to be aware uh, that we're facing a prospect of severe environmental disaster, effects that are already detectable, and uh, that might become dire within uh, a few generations if current tendencies are not uh, reversed. Just to give a few examples, uh, a couple of weeks ago, two leading scientific journals published a new study of the West Antarctic uh, ice sheet. It's long been understood that if it collapses, it will lead almost inevitably to a rise in global sea level of at least 10 feet within a few generations wipes out civilization in any recognizable form. The reports, uh, the new studies reported that it is collapsing. Uh, leading scientists who are familiar with the study uh, warn that continued release of greenhouse gases will almost certainly make the situation worse destabilizing other parts of Antarctica, as well as the Greenland ice sheet, causing many of the world's coastal cities to be abandoned with horrifying consequences for uh, the poor inhabitants of coastal plains and probably millions in Bangladesh alone. Uh, the leading uh, U.S. scientific society, the AAAS, which is usually quite conservative, uh, did issue a study a few days earlier reporting, I'm quoting it, the overwhelming evidence of human-caused climate change with both current impacts and extraordinary future risks to society and natural systems. Uh, the report expressed particular concern over, quoting again, the disconnect between scientific knowledge and public per uh, perception. They're talking about the United States. And uh, that's not an accident. Uh, leading sectors of the business world are uh, quite openly running uh, major propaganda campaigns to convince the public that uh, humans are not responsible for global warming uh, if it's occurring at all. 
some of the leading business journals like the uh, Wall Street Journal and Forbes responded to the latest IPCC report with uh, articles saying that the real problem is global cooling. Uh, and there's some effect. Uh, there are recent studies uh, that show, polling studies that show that concern about global warming in the United States is well below the global norm. Uh, and it's stratified. Among Republicans, it's far below the global norm. Among Democrats, slightly below. And that's not untypical of the contemporary Republican Party, which is no longer a uh, conventional parliamentary party. There's a more accurate description that was given by one of the very few remaining genuine conservatives, the respected uh, political analyst uh, of the right-wing American Inter Enterprise Institute, Norman Ornstein. Uh, he describes the former Republican Party as a radical insurgency which has pretty much abandoned the domain of parliamentary politics. And although he didn't add this, uh, we can say that the reason is that's in virtual lockstep service to extreme wealth and privilege. And one aspect of this is denial of climate change, or at least the human role in this uh, terrifying development. Uh, the uh, current issue of the premier journal of media criticism, the Columbia Journalism Review, has an interesting article about this topic. It attributes this outcome to a media doctrine that's called fair and balanced. Thus, if a journal uh, publishes an opinion piece reflecting the opinion of 97% uh, of scientists, it has to run alongside it a piece, a uh, counterpiece expressing the claims of the energy corporations. So the public ends up confused. And that is indeed what happens, uh, but there's certainly no doctrine of fair and balanced. Uh, thus, if a journal, say, uh, runs an opinion piece uh, denouncing Putin once again for the criminal act of taking over Crimea, it surely does not have to run a piece alongside it pointing out that while this act is indeed criminal, uh, Russia has a far stronger case than the U.S. does in uh, having taken over southeastern Cuba over 100 years ago, including Cuba's major port, uh, rejecting the demand of Cuba since independence to have it returned with no justification at all, unlike the Russians, only the justification that this contributes to the 50-year uh, program of uh, terrorist warfare, which was quite extreme, and uh, economic strangulation of Cuba. And there are uh, quite a few other current cases, but they don't have to be mentioned under the doctrine of fair and balanced. There is an actual media doctrine has to be fair and balanced when the concerns of concentrated private power are involved, surely not elsewhere. But although obvious enough, uh, this cannot be perceived in the elite culture, so it appears. Uh, there's now much exuberance in the United States about uh, what's called a hundred years of energy independence lying ahead as we become the Saudi Arabia of the next century. Uh, President Obama orated about the matter with 
his usual eloquence uh, two years ago. I'll quote him. He proclaimed with pride to ample applause that now under my administration, America's producing more oil than at any time in the last eight years. That's important to know. Uh, over the past three years, I've directed my administration to open up millions of acres for gas and oil exploration across 23 different states. Uh, we're opening up more than 75% of our potential oil reserves resources offshore. Uh, we've quadrupled the number of operating rigs to a record high. We've added an, enough new oil and gas pipeline to encircle the earth and then some uh, uplifting. Uh, the applause uh, tells us something important about our social and moral malaise. The president was speaking in Cushing, Oklahoma. That's an oil town, as he announced in greeting his appreciative audience. In fact, it's the oil town. It's described as the most significant trading hub for crude oil in North America. And industry profits are sure to be secured in the short term as producing more oil and gas here at home, in the president's words, will continue to be a critical part of energy strategy, as the president promised. Uh, let's go to the media. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, the New York Times uh, published an energy supplement, eight pages, uh, mostly euphoria about the bright future for the United States, poised to be the greatest producer of fossil fuels. The missing in the eight pages is any reflection on what kind of world we're exuberantly creating. Uh, one might recall uh, George Orwell's observation in his unpublished introduction to Animal Farm about how in free England ideas can be suppressed without the use of force, uh, not least because immersion in the elite culture, having a good education, instills the understanding that there are certain things it wouldn't do to say, or we can add even to think. Uh, in the moral calculus of contemporary Anglo-American state capitalism, profits and bonuses in the next quarter that greatly outweigh concern for the welfare of one's grandchildren. While much remains uncertain, we can assure ourselves with fair confidence that future generations will not forgive us for our silence and our apathy. We might, in fact, wish to consider a remarkable paradox of the current era. There are some who are devoting themselves seriously to try to avert impending disaster. In the lead are the most oppressed segments of the global population, those considered to be the most backward and primitive, the indigenous societies of the world, First Nations in Canada, Aboriginals in Australia, tribal tribal people in India, and uh, others like them. And in countries with uh, influential indigenous populations like uh, Bolivia and Ecuador, uh, there are by now uh, even legislative proposals uh, 
legislative recognition of rights of nature. The government of Ecuador actually uh, proposed to leave their supplies of oil in the ground where they should be if the European countries would uh, provide them development aid amounting to a small fraction of what they would sacrifice by not exploiting their oil resources. And of course, the European countries refused. They didn't bother asking the United States. Uh, while uh, indigenous people are trying to avert the disaster, in sharp contrast, the race to the cliff is led by the most advanced, educated, wealthy, privileged societies in the world. Uh, notably North America, others not far behind, few exceptions like Germany, but not many. Unless there's a significant change of course, and soon uh, the prospect for decent survival is quite slim. And that's not all. Uh, for the past 70 years, we've been living under the threat of instant and virtual, virtually total destruction at our own hands. Uh, those familiar with the shocking record, and if you're not familiar with it, I'd urge looking at it, but those familiar with it, and the record continues to the present, uh, would find it hard to contest the conclusions of General Lee Butler. He's the last commander of the Strategic Air Command, which has responsibility for nuclear weapons. Uh, he writes that we have so far survived the nuclear age by some combination of skill, luck, and divine intervention, and I suspect the latter in the greatest proportion. Uh, it's actually a near miracle that we've escaped destruction so far, and the longer we tempt fate, the less likely it is that uh, we can hope for divine intervention to... Uh, save us from our folly. In this context, it's worth taking a close look at the factors that drive policy. Uh, there is a received standard ver version. It's common to academic, scholarly discourse, uh, public discourse, uh, diplomatic commentary. So I'll just quote a few leading figures, but it's almost universal. Uh, take, say, George Kennan, one of the creators of the modern world. Uh, according to him, government is created to assure order and justice internally and to provide for the common defense. Uh, coming to the present and the current issue of the journal National Interest, uh, leading realist scholar uh, John Mearsheimer uh, formulates the doctrine as holding that the structure of the international system forces countries concerned about, concerned about their security to compete with each other for power. Uh, leading scholar of uh, U.S. Middle East policy, William Quant, also long diplomatic experience, writes that the driving force of U.S. policy is to ensure security and well-being of the population, and so on, pretty much endlessly. Uh, we can put aside the standard pieties about justice and well-being of the population. Uh, what is emphasized throughout is concern for security which sounds plausible enough, but there's a few unanswered questions. For example, security for whom? Uh, 
Well, one answer is security for state power. Now, there are many illustrations of that. So take a current one from a couple of days ago. Uh, the United States agreed, and this is unusual, to support a Security Council resolution calling on the International Criminal Court to investigate war crimes in Syria. But there was a proviso. No inquiry is, will be tolerated uh, into possible war crimes by Israel or, of course, by the United States. That's the explicit proviso, and it's routine. Uh, the United States is uniquely self-immunized from the international legal system. It's a very interesting topic. I don't have time to pursue it, but it does illustrate the importance of protecting the security of the state, security of state power. Uh, to protect the security of state power from whom? Well, enemies, of course, but who are the enemies? It turns out that one prime enemy is the domestic population. That fact is uh, demonstrated over and over very clearly recently, very clearly quite generally by government secrecy, uh, as uh, it very rarely has a genuine security motivation. Uh, that much should be familiar to anyone who's uh, plowed through declassified documents almost never find anything related to genuine security. Uh, it, uh, it, but there is a, a, an effect. The effect is to keep the population in the dark, the enemy. They have to make sure they don't know what's going on. And there are good reasons. Uh, some of these were explained by uh, the professor of the science of government, I always like that title. The professor of the science of government at Harvard, uh, Samuel Huntington, prominent liberal scholar, government advisor. Uh, he instructs us that the architects of power in the United States must create a force that can be felt but not seen. Power remains strong when it remains in the dark. Exposed to the sunlight, it begins to evaporate. Uh, that was in 1981, when the Cold War was again heating up. And Huntington went on to explain that you may have to sell intervention or other military action in such a way as to create the misimpression that it's the Soviet Union that you're fighting. Uh, that's what the United States has been doing ever since the Truman Doctrine of 1947. Uh, 1981 was another uh, critical year in this regard. It was the year when Reagan declared the first war on terror, uh, plague of the modern age, uh, return to barbarism in our time, etc., etc. And uh, ever since then, particularly after the disappearance of the Russian threat or temporary disappearance as a concocted ogre, uh, terror. You have to create the misimpression that it's terror that you're fighting. There are other candidates, uh, narco-traffickers, uh, crazed mullahs, a number of others. Uh, all of this is rarely acknowledged, but it's very accurate, and it's a good insight into state power and policy. Uh, there's plenty of reverberations right to the present moment. Uh, so state power 
it surely has to be secured from dangerous enemies like the domestic population. But in sharp contrast, uh, the public is not secure from state power. Uh, a very striking illustration of that right now. Uh, President Obama's current radical attack on the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which, uh, to quote it, protects citizens from unreasonable search and seizure, uh, protects their, the privacy of their persons, homes, papers, and effects. The defense of this right uh, in Boston uh, helped spark the American Revolution. That's why it was written into the Constitution, into the Bill of Rights. At that time, the tyrant was the British government, and now the tyrant is the American government. Um, of course, referring to the extraordinary uh, uh, surveillance campaign, Obama's surveillance campaign, which seeks to monitor everything, without exception, that you say or do and anyone connected in any way to the electronic culture, uh, cell phone, uh, computer, landline, uh, is uh, vulnerable to this uh, inquiry. And Britain agrees uh, the government remains tyrannical. Uh, the British government, as perhaps you know, authorized the uh, United States National Security Agency actually requested it, uh, in quotes, to analyze and retain any British citizen's mobile phone and fax numbers, emails, and IP addresses that are swept up in the NSA dragnet, which is colossal, picks up essentially everything. Now, you should also be happy to know that the NSA routinely receives or intercepts routers, servers, computers, other computer network devices that are being exported from the United States so that it can implant surveillance tools, make sure that the NSA knows every keystroke you're making. And presumably China does the same, which kind of exhausts the range. Uh, uh, all of this is justified by security in accord with the standard doctrine. But it's worth remembering that the claim uh, uh, to, uh, of justification for security carries no information whatsoever, literally, even in the technical sense. It's completely predictable for virtually all actions of states when they're caught in some crime or malfeasance. And if something's perfectly predictable, it simply carries no information. Uh, in the case of the uh, Snowden revelations, the first reaction of the U.S. government was the reflexive one, security. Uh, the president, uh, the head of the NSA, uh, informed the public that uh, numerous terrorist plots were stopped by these surveillance uh, methods. And the first uh, claim was 54 were stopped. That was later reduced to a dozen. There was later a government commission established which uh, investigated exactly how many had been stopped. And it turned out there was one. Uh, somebody sent $8,500 to Somalia. That, so far, is the total yield of this colossal effort to monitor and control the population, the domestic uh, enemy.
there is another concern, security for private power. Uh, major current illustration are the uh, huge uh, trade agreements that are now being negotiated, Trans-Pacific and Transatlantic. They're secret, but not completely. They're not secret to the hundreds of corporate lawyers and lobbyists who are writing the detailed regulations. Uh, you can guess what they are and why they're secret. Uh, there are other illustrations throughout the Snowden documents. One of the interesting parts of them is uh, that they reveal uh, extensive economic espionage in the interests of U.S. corporations. Actually, when this is brought to the attention of the government, they say, well, we don't choose particular corporations, uh, which is correct. It's just the general corporate sector that has to be, whose, which is whose security must be protected by uh, state intervention. Uh, well, there are other examples. They're actually too numerous to mention, and they shouldn't be surprising. Actually, there's a, one a recent study just came out from Princeton University to leading political scientists, Martin Gillens, Benjamin Page, uh, who studied hundreds of policy decisions and conclude with very careful analysis, I'll quote, economic elites and organized groups representing business interests have substantial independent impact on U.S. government policy, while average citizens and mass-based interest groups have little or no independent influence. Uh, these results, they say, provide substantial support for theories of economic elite domination and for theories of biased pluralism, but not for theories of majoritarian electoral democracy or majoritarian pluralism. Now, to put it simply, it's a pretense that we live in democracies. They're plutocracies. Uh, other work by these and other scholars, particularly Martin Gillens, has shown pretty uh, convincingly that in the United States, about 70% of the population, the lower 70% on the income scale, have no influence at all on policy. That's one of the reasons why most of them don't vote. Why bother? doesn't matter what they think. Uh, as you move up the scale, you get a little more influence. And at the very top, which means a fraction of 1%, uh, basically that's where policy is written. So it's not surprising that the security of uh, private interest is a major commitment of, of, of the state. And this, this goes way back. There's nothing new about it. It's getting kind of grotesque by now, but uh, it goes far back. The uh, closest, uh, most careful inquiry into this is done by a very good political scientist, Thomas Ferguson, University of Massachusetts. He studied uh, the effect of the relation between campaign spending and policy choices back into the 19th century. And it turns out it's an extremely good predictor. Take a look at the distribution of campaign spending, you can pretty well predict the policies that will be enacted. This runs right through the New Deal, has very few exceptions. Actually, there was a, over a century ago the most prominent in American history, the most prominent campaign manager, Mark Hanna, uh, around the turn of the 19th century, was asked, uh, what are the most important things 
that are necessary for running a campaign. And he said there are three. The first one's money. The second one's money. And I've forgotten what the third one is. Uh, that was well over 100 years ago. Now it's well beyond. Nevertheless, it's useful to have uh, a new and very careful confirmation by Gillens and Page of facts that are so obvious that in a free society they'd be taught in elementary school. Well, the United States is actually an unusually uh, free and open society in a number of respects, uh, crucial ones. And one of them relevant here is the accessibility of internal state records, secret records declassified. And they provide a very revealing account of the actual motives of state policy. Fortunately, no time to review the matter here, but there are a few persistent themes. Uh, we find consistently that one major driving factor in policy choices is concern about what uh, Henry Kissinger called viruses that spread contagion. Uh, he was referring specifically to Allende's Chile which threatened to spread the contagion of a peaceful parliamentary path towards uh, independent development and social welfare. You know the outcome in that case. And it's duplicated in case after case throughout Latin America, Southeast Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. It's the most prominent theme of Cold War history. Uh, in general, there's ample evidence that security of state power, crucially security from the population, and security of concentrated economic power, private power, that these are driving forces in policy formation. Furthermore, that's entirely natural and to be expected when you look into how policy is formulated. Of course, it's not quite that simple. There are some interesting cases, some quite current, in fact, when these commitments conflict. It's interesting to see what happens in those cases. But this is an extremely good first approximation and radically opposed to the uh, received standard doctrine, what you're taught and what you read. Well, let's turn to another question. What about security of the population? It's very easy to demonstrate that this is at most a marginal concern of policy planners. So take two very prominent examples, two I mentioned, global warming and nuclear weapons, both dire threats to the security of the population, uh, turn to state policy. In both cases, it systematically attempts to accelerate the threat in the interests of its primary concerns protection of state power and protection of uh, concentrated private power, uh, namely the power that largely uh, sets determines state policy. In the case of global warming, the uh, conclusion is too obvious even to tarry on, uh, so I'll drop it. But it's quite instructive to see that even instant destruction by nuclear weapons has never ranked high among the concerns of state authorities. The record reveals that quite, quite clearly. Let me run a few, few examples. Start in the early days of the atomic age, 
around 1950. Uh, at that time, the United States was overwhelmingly powerful and enjoyed remarkable security. There was nothing like it in history. It controlled the Western Hemisphere, controlled both oceans, controlled the opposite sides of both oceans, uh, had half the world's wealth, uh, just incomparable power and security. Actually, there was a potential threat. Uh, ICBMs with hydrogen bomb warheads didn't exist at the time, but it was potential threat. Uh, there is a standard scholarly review of uh, nuclear policies. Uh, it's uh, undertaken access to high-level sources, declassified documents uh, by uh, McGeorge Bundy. He was the uh, national security advisor for Kennedy and Johnson administrations, former Harvard dean. Uh, and he writes that, I'll quote him, the timely development of ballistic missiles during the Eisenhower administration, the 50s, is one of the best achievements of those eight years. Yet it is well to begin with a recognition that both the United States and the Soviet Union might be in much less nuclear danger today if these missiles had never been developed. And he then adds an instructive comment. He says, I am aware of no serious contemporary proposal in or out of government that ballistic missiles should somehow be banned by agreement. So in short, there was apparently no thought of trying to prevent the sole serious threat to the United States, the threat of instant utter destruction. And this striking fact merits barely a phrase in this massive standard comprehensive history and it's also passed unnoticed. Well, could it have been prevented? Can't be sure, of course, but there are some indications that it might have been possible. One suggestive indication is a remarkable proposal by Stalin in 1952. He offered to permit Germany to be unified with free elections, which of course the communists would lose, but on condition, one condition, that it, that it not join a hostile military alliance. That's hardly an extreme condition if you look at the history of the preceding half century. Uh, Stalin's proposal was ignored or ridiculed, uh, but recent scholarship has begun to take a different view especially with the uh, release of uh, Russian archival records. There's a bitterly anti-communist uh, Harvard scholar, Adam Ulam, late Adam Ulam, specialist on the Bolshevik uh, period. Uh, he takes the status of Stalin's proposal to be an unresolved mystery. He writes that Washington wasted little effort in flatly rejecting Moscow's initiative on grounds that were embarrassingly unconvincing, leaving open the basic question, was Stalin genuinely ready to sacrifice the newly created German Democratic Republic, East Germany, on the altar of real democracy, with consequences for world peace and for American security that would have been enormous. That remains an open question. Uh, one of the 
most prominent Cold War scholars, Melvin Leffler, has reviewed recent research in Soviet archives, and he writes that many scholars, including him, were surprised to discover that the Lavrenti Beria, the sinister, brutal head of the secret police, proposed that the Kremlin offer the West a deal on unification and neutralization of Germany, agreeing to sacrifice the East German communist regime to reduce East-West tensions, and of course, for them, improve internal political and economic conditions, opportunities that were squandered in favor of, by the West, in favor of securing West German participation in NATO. Uh, under the circumstances, actual circumstances, not the propaganda ones, it's not impossible that agreements might have been reached that would have protected the security of the population from the gravest threat on the horizon, instant total destruction. But the option, the possibility was apparently not considered, recognized, but dismissed or ridiculed. It's another indication of how slight a role authentic security plays in state policy, contrary to standard doctrine. And actually, that was revealed again repeatedly in the years that followed. Uh, a couple of years later, Nikita Khrushchev took office. He understood that Russia could not compete militarily with the United States, the richest, most powerful country in history, in comparable advantages. Uh, if Russia hoped to escape its economic backwardness and the devastating effect of the Second World War, he concluded it would be necessary to sharply reverse the arms race. And he, in fact, proposed sharp mutual reduction in uh, offensive nuclear weapons. The incoming Kennedy administration considered the offer and rejected it. It turned instead to rapid military expansion. There's a review of this by one of the most respected IR international relations scholars, Kenneth Waltz, recently died. Uh, he wrote that the Kennedy administration undertook the largest strategic and conventional peacetime military buildup the world has ever seen, even as Khrushchev was trying at once to carry out a major reduction in the conventional forces and to follow a strategy of minimum deterrence. And we, the United States, did so even though the balance of strategic weapons greatly favored the United States. Again, decisions that harm national security, harm the security of the people, while enhancing state power. Uh, a major, uh, Kennedy, as you may recall, barely squeaked to victory in 1960 in the election, mainly by fraud. But one of the ways he squeaked to victory was his charge that uh, uh, the opponent, Eisenhower and Nixon, had permitted the Russians uh, to leap ahead in offensive weaponry, uh, creating what was called a missile gap that severely threatened U.S. security, and that frightened the population. Uh, the reality was that the United States was far in the lead. Uh, the Russians actually had four operational ICBMs, which were exposed to attack, tiny fraction of the U.S. arsenal. Uh, 
that was recognized by the Kennedy administration. Uh, George Bundy, National Security Advisor, speaking for the administration, he explained that they had nevertheless been right in emphasizing a fake missile gap. And the reason he gave was that the phrase had a useful shorthand effect of calling attention to our basic military posture, namely the posture of rapidly expanding the overwhelming U.S. dominance and threat while rejecting security and the prospects for survival. Normal. Uh, There was a Soviet reaction. It was to place missiles in Cuba in October 1962. Uh, That move was motivated as well by Kennedy's quite immense, huge uh, terrorist campaign against Cuba. It was very serious, and it was scheduled to lead to invasion in October 1962, as Russia and Cuba may well have known. Uh, That brought us to... uh, what historian Arthur Schlesinger called the most dangerous moment in history, and it was extremely dangerous. Uh, The crisis peaked in late October 1962, October 26th, 27th. Uh, Kennedy then received a letter, a secret letter, from Khrushchev offering to end the crisis by simultaneous public withdrawal of Russian missiles from Cuba and U.S. Jupiter missiles from Turkey. These were obsolete missiles for which a withdrawal order had already been given because they were being replaced by much more dangerous and at the time invulnerable Polaris submarines. So that was the offer. Russia would remove the missiles from Cuba. The U.S. would continue to remove missiles which are already being withdrawn because they're being replaced by more dangerous ones. Uh, Kennedy's subjective estimate uh, was that if he refused, the probability of nuclear war would be a third to a half. That's a war that would have destroyed the northern hemisphere, according to Eisenhower, President Eisenhower's warning. Kennedy refused. It's hard to think of a more horrendous decision in history. And worse, he's greatly praised for it, for his cool courage, his statesmanship. Ten years later, Henry Kissinger called a nuclear alert. It was the last days of the 1973 Israel-Arab War. And there was a purpose. The purpose was to warn the Russians not to interfere with his delicate diplomacy. He was carrying out delicate diplomatic maneuvers which were designed to ensure an Israeli victory in the war, but a limited victory, so that the United States would still remain in total control of the region unilaterally. And the maneuvers were delicate. The United States and Russia had jointly imposed a ceasefire, but Kissinger turns out, had secretly informed Israel that they could ignore the ceasefire. Uh, Therefore, there was a need to uh, call a nuclear alert to frighten the Russians away. The security of the population had its usual status, zero. Uh, Ten years after that, the Reagan administration came in and they launched operations to probe Russian air defenses. That meant simulating air and naval attacks, calling the highest level nuclear alert. 
uh, into Russian waters and territory. And uh, these were taken at a very tense moment. Uh, right at that time, uh, Pershing II strategic missiles had were being deployed in Europe a few minutes flight time to Moscow. Uh, Reagan had announced the Star Wars program, SDI, which the Russians understood to be effectively a first strike weapon. That's a standard interpretation of so-called missile defense on all sides. And other tensions were rising. Well, naturally, these actions caused considerable alarm in Russia. Unlike the United States, Russia is quite vulnerable, repeatedly been invaded and practically destroyed. Actually, that led to a major war scare in 1983. Uh, newly released archives, Russian archives, reveal that the danger was much more severe uh, even than historians of the nuclear uh, interactions had previously assumed. There's a recent uh, CIA study which is called The War Scare Was For Real. It concluded that U.S. intelligence had underestimated Russian concerns and the threat of a Russian reaction. Uh, these exercises, I'm quoting, almost became a prelude to a preventative nuclear strike. Count in the recent issue of the journal of Strategic Studies. And it turns out it was even more dangerous than that. Uh, we learned that last September. The BBC reported that right in the midst of these really world-threatening developments, Russia's early warning systems detected an incoming missile strike from the United States, sending off the highest-level automated alert as a protocol for Soviet military, same with the U.S., and that is to retaliate at once uh, with uh, a nuclear attack of its own. Can't wait any longer. Uh, there was an officer on duty, Stanislav Petrov, and he decided to disobey the orders and not to report the warning to his superiors. He received an official reprimand, and thanks to his de uh, dereliction of duty, we're around to talk about it. Uh, security of uh, the population was no more a priority for Reagan planners than for their predecessors. And that continues until the present, even putting aside the numerous near-catastrophic accidents, which are really quite shocking. They're reviewed in a chilling new book by Eric Schlosser. Uh, plans for the future are hardly promising. Congressional U.S. Congressional Budget Office just reported that the U.S. nuclear arsenal uh, will cost $350 billion over the next decade, and that costs of expanding and modernizing it will quadruple from 1924 to 1930. Uh, there's a detailed study by the Center for Nonproliferation of the Monterey Institute for International Studies estimated that the U.S. will spend a trillion dollars on the nuclear arsenal in the next 30 years. Uh, as they put it, that's a percentage of the military budget comparable to spending for procurement of new strategic systems in the 1980s under President Ronald Reagan. And of course, the U.S. is not alone. 
as uh, General Butler observed. It's a near miracle that we've escaped destruction so far, and the longer we tempt fate, the less likely it is uh, that we can hope for divine intervention to perpetuate the miracle. Uh, in the background is a legal obligation as determined by the world court that the nuclear powers undertake good faith efforts to eliminate nuclear weapons well that's far in the background legal obligations are not for the powerful uh, this review only scratches the surface uh, there are numerous other ways to evaluate the conventional doctrines about the goals of policy the forces that shape policy decisions I think if you inquire into them and it's quite worth doing uh, you'll find that uh, they converge in the conclusions that I just mentioned quote Gillens and Page again policy is largely set by economic elites and organized groups representing business interests with little concerns for public attitudes or public safety as long as the public remains passive and obedient uh, frightened by concocted ogres uh, security is to be sure a prime concern security of power and profit not security the population marginal concern now, these have never been small problems and that's particularly true right now so let me end by stressing again that what we should all know very well that we now face the most ominous decisions in human history now, there are many problems of the world but two are overwhelming in their significance environmental destruction and nuclear war for the first time in history we face the prospects of destroying the possibility for decent existence and not in the distant future and for this reason alone it's imperative to sweep away the ideological clouds face honestly and realistically the question of how policy decisions are made in our societies and what we can do to alter them before it's too late. Thanks. Well, now, now to you all. Um, I'd like to take questions in clusters of three so that we can get uh, a few remarks out. I'll take uh, three from the Great Hall now before we go to um, other lecture theatres and uh, bring them in. So uh, I, do I see any hands? If we have a roaming mic and you'll need it. So there's a gentleman at the back there. Hi, Mr. Chomsky, Paris Katsinas, on behalf of the Greek uh, Editor's Journal and on behalf of uh, the ex-Greek BBC. Um, I had many questions to ask you. Can you, uh, can you put the mic just I wanted to away from your Away mind. from me, sorry for the feedback. Eh? Can you hear me clearly? 
Yes, thank you. I had many questions to, to ask you. One. Uh, one, yes. One, yes. Sure. One, just one. Uh, but I, I chose one. Many people uh, told me to ask you, but I, I chose the question of a 55-year-old doorman. He works in the doors here in the clubs in Newcastle. It's a very simple question, and I would like your answer, please, sir. And uh, this gentleman asked me, why politicians lie? Okay, well, that was, that's a straightforward question. Why politicians lie? Yes, we'll come back to that rather brutal question. Let's just take um, from the back. Anyone? Let's go right to the back. Thank you, Dr. Chomsky. Um, you talked uh, quite a bit about how governments uh, seek to perpetuate their own power, even if it's directly against the interests of their own people. And you listed a bunch of examples um, about how the U.S. government has done so um, through expanding uh, militarily. Um, how important do you feel is uh, a military-industrial complex whereby private corporations seek to... Um, expand and provide military equipment to the government. How important do you feel that is in um, causing this problem? Do you have that question? It's, yeah, okay. We'll move on. It's all men so far. Surely we can do better than that. Yeah, come down here. Um, I was wondering, you talked about the role of the media in sort of perpetuating a gap between public knowledge and scientific knowledge. And I wondered if you thought that, you know, the growing force of the internet and the power of any person to reach a worldwide audience might do something to negate that and to try and improve that and sort of narrow that gap. Do you want to put that into a short question? Go on. I wondered if you thought that through the internet people might be able to narrow the gap yes. between yeah. scientific knowledge Can and public knowledge. Can the internet narrow the gap between you know, ideology and knowledge, as it were? All right, let's take those three to begin with. Well, I think that, uh, that relates to the first question, why politicians lie. The simple answer is because we let them. Uh, we have the power to prevent it. But if you don't use the power, if you sit back and say, I don't care, then they'll lie. And they have good reasons to. I mean, would it make sense for Tony Blair, say, to stand up now and say, please set up a war crimes tribunal to try me for the, for the supreme international crime of aggression? Would that make sense? Or for him to say, please throw me out of my position as a special representative for the Middle East Quartet because I'm doing absolutely nothing for peace but enriching myself. Uh, or would it make sense for... Uh, and you can run down the line. Now, there's very good reasons either to lie or just not to tell the truth. Uh, if politicians told the truth... I think, you decide for yourselves, I think they would be saying what I was just talking about. They would be saying, we don't care at all about your security or your safety or your survival. We care about our power and about the power of the concentrated, concentrated domestic power, which in our societies means basically the corporate sector. Now, it's not 100% the case, of course, you know. But it will be, it'll, there's a strong tendency for it to be the case for the people who reach the top. Uh, that's how they reach the top. But the real answer is we let them. And that's, our, that's up to, we're talking about ourselves now. Good to look into the mirror. Can the internet help? 
it's one of the ways in which the general population can try to counter the uh, extraordinary power of, uh, of, of concentrate, mostly concentrated economic power. But again, only if you use it. And uh, uh, you could say this it's, it's, it's true whether there's an Internet or not. Um, the Internet does offer some new met new options. It also offers new options for controlling and uh, suppressing. Uh, technology pretty much tends to be neutral. You can use it to liberate. You can use it to oppress. And the answer to which happens is in our hands. Um, the military-industrial complex.